Life is worth a living just because he lives. In many ways, that sentence answers all of humanity's questions that has ever been asked. Many people who find themselves living under the sun, and as we've been seeing throughout the series of messages from Ecclesiastes, it means living a life without God, it's seeing things from our perspective, not God's perspective. And in many ways, most of us have lived, if not all of us, have lived at some time, some point, under the sun. Even when those of us who know the Lord Jesus, we have allowed times in our lives when we try to take control of things and thought we can really do things with our lives and then made a mess of it and find ourselves asking the question in the midst of that time under the sun and say, is life really worth living? And the answer is because he lives, life is worth the living. Because the resurrected Jesus Christ, all those who belong to him, will live a life that's not only worth living, but a life that is meaningful, a life that's productive, a life that is fruitful. Even a thousand years before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Solomon, who was searching, he called himself the searcher, he called himself the preacher, he called himself the investigator of life under the sun, concluded that life under the sun, that is life without God, He said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, meaning it is futile, all futile. Life is futile without God. Oh, but life is worth the living because he lives. Life, he said, under the sun is monotonous and boring. He told us that life is void of meaning, has no meaning to it. Life is futile, that life is short and uncertain. Oh, but then when he got lifted up, above the sun where God is, and he began to see things from God's perspective, not from his own human eyes, not from his own perspective. When he was lifted, he literally, his conclusion flipped 180 degrees. Oh, what a difference God makes to our view of life. What a difference God makes to our own perspective on life. And Solomon said that when you live above the sun, life is far from being boring and monotonous. (laughs) In fact, he said that every season in life has a purpose as long as you try to understand it from God's perspective. That every segment of life is beautiful in His time. Life is a wonderful gift from the hand of God. That God has given us all things to have to enjoy, the Apostle Paul said, and to use for His glory. That God gives us people that we can love and fellowship with. That God gives us wisdom to live our lives with. That God, even in the brevity of time, God has a purpose for that because it motivates us to make the most of life because we know that one day we're going to stand in accountability to the God who gave us life. In every generation and every nation, people have searched for meaning in life, and Solomon is no exception. They're looking for happiness in life and looking for contentment in life. They're looking for peace of mind. Others, of course, are searching for some secret formula that's going to prolong their life. (laughs) You see it all the time. You do this, you prolong your life. You do this, and you're going to prolong your life. Bless their hearts. But in fact, I read not long ago about (laughs) the man who discovered Vaseline. 
he was a chemist. And really, Vaseline was not kind of come into it because somebody was trying to discover Vaseline. He stumbled on it. His name is Robert A. Chesborough, and he was a chemist, and he lived in Brooklyn. He actually was looking for a secret formula to prolong life. And he was playing with his chemistry set <laughs> and trying to find that formula that's going to prolong his life, make it long. At that moment, he stumbled on Vaseline, and he thought that was it. <laughs> so he actually convinced himself that he found the secret formula for long life. And so he said that if you swallow a teaspoon of Vaseline every day, it will prolong your life. <laughs> it makes you feel it's so long you want to die. <laughs> but in 1933, Robert died, choked on Vaseline. <laughs> And the opposite spectrum of this, there are some people who live life so negatively, they see everything dark and, and gloomy, and it's like the sign that I saw not long ago, it says, why take life seriously? You'll never get out of it alive anyway. <laughs> this pessimistic view of life says that life doesn't count much. And you see, depending on how your view of life your view of God is going to determine your view of life. If you live your life viewing it from God's prism, it will have meaning. But if you see it from your own perspective, you'll see it very pessimistically. And Solomon's ultimate conclusion, when he began to see things from above the sun's perspective, where God is, is fourfold. And it's in the last two chapters of Ecclesiastes, which I'm concluding today. Turn to chapter 11 and 12 of the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the fourfold conclusion that he comes to, not from under the sun, but from above the sun, first he said that life is a stewardship invested wisely. In chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Secondly, he said, life is a celebration. Delight in it. Chapter 11, verse 7, to chapter 12, verse 8. And thirdly, he said, life is a school. Grow in it. 12, 9 to 12. And fourthly, he said, life is a responsibility. Succeed in it. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12. First, he said, life is a stewardship invested wisely. You see, when you realize that everything in life, not only possessions, but family, friends, everything you have, everything in life, when you see it as a gift from God that is given to you, that He entrusted you to manage all of His bounties that He has placed in your hands on His behalf, that you don't own it, but He's giving it to you to manage it for Him, you will literally view everything as a trust. Now, I mean, it's not a secret that if you give somebody some money to invest for you, or a money manager or a bank or whatever, you will watch and expect that they're going to give you good return on the money. If they start embezzling your money, you're going to do something about it. And that's what God is doing. He is giving you, He's giving me all of these things that we have as a trust to manage for him. That's why Jesus talks about the parable of the talent. He gave one ten and one five and one one. 
And what happened? The guy who got the tin went out, worked hard, doubled it, brought it back. The other one, five, did the same thing, doubled it, brought it back. He didn't expect any more than that. But the one who got the one telling said, well, why bother? And he buried it. And remember the words of Jesus said, if you put it in the bank, you would have earned some interest. You would have something to show for it. God is giving us everything in life as a gift and as a trust, and He is expecting us to invest it wisely, to work carefully, in order that we may present it at the last day with dividends. And then Solomon goes on to give us two illustrations. The two professions, if you like, at that time, on which the entire economy was built. I think if he's writing for our uh, today, he will talk about a money manager or, or an investor. But back then, the whole economy was dependent on two professions. One is the shipping merchants, and two, the farmers. It's basically plant the ground, harvest the ground, sell the grain. The merchant sends out ships. The farmer plants seed. And Solomon is saying that in both those activities, there is a great deal of wisdom that is needed in investing. That in both these, there is a great deal of faith that is required in the things you can't control. That in both these situations, there is diligence and hard works and faithfulness that is required. Why? Because neither the shipping merchant nor the farmer are in control of all of their circumstances. None of us are in control of all of our circumstances. We like to think so. Some people really try. God bless them. You know, we have the goods. We have the wherewithal. But we're not in control. The ship that is sent out loaded with goods to be sold in the other harbors, <laughs> they can face a storm on the high sea and fell apart. That ship can be taken over by pirates, or that ship can hit a rock and then fall apart right in the sea. The same thing with the farmer. He can face a drought, a boll weevil. He can face an insect that can literally wipe him out. But if either of them, says Solomon, sit back and say, well, I am going to wait until all the circumstances just become hunky-dory, and when all the weather is good and everything is really going to work out fine, then I'll plant, or then I'll send the ship. He said, if you do that, you'll never get anything done. That's what he's saying here. It's a Yusuf translation, but you'll get it. He said, you'll never get a first base if you just wait for everything to be just right. Hear me right on this one. All investments in life carry a certain amount of risk in it. All investments carry a certain amount of risk in it. The only investment that is risk-free is the investment that you make in the work of God. Because the Bible said, Jesus said, that investment is in the heavenly bank and nobody can touch it. And when Solomon says, cast your bread upon the water, and you've heard People tell us, cast your bread upon the water. (laughs) What does it mean? It doesn't mean feed the fishes. He's saying, send out your ships filled with grains and with goods, trusting in God. Send out your ships knowing full well that it may be months before these ships return back loaded with goods. By the same token, he said, 
Farming is very difficult. It's not easy, especially in the land of Israel. I will never forget how it was absolutely a surprise to me, the first visit I made to Israel, when I looked at the fields and I saw rocks, I mean rocks right there in the planting fields of the land of Israel. The farmer in Bible land is so thoroughly dependent on God. He works hard to get these rocks away, but he is thoroughly dependent on God to send the early and the latter rain. Without that, he cannot function. But the farmer, Solomon said, shouldn't just sit there idly by, hoping for the ideal circumstances to come along the way before he can plant or harvest. Now, he said, that would accomplish nothing. On the contrary, that he has to work hard. He has to do his job very wisely. He has to do his investment in the sowing of the seed. And he works hard while he's waiting for the harvest to make plans and room for the harvest. And then he trusts God to take care of the rest. He can only do what he can do, but then allows God, trusts God, put his faith in God to do his part, what he cannot control. See, the whole of life, Solomon said, is a stewardship. And so, you and I must invest it wisely. Secondly, he said, life is a celebration. Delight in it. Look at verses 7 of chapter 11 all the way to 12, 8. This is the longest part of the passage. And what Solomon is saying here is this. He says, for you to enjoy life and see it as a celebration, there are three things that you must do. He says, rejoice, verses 7 to 9. He said, remove, verses 10 to 11. And he said, remember, chapter 12, 1 to 8. Rejoice. How you rejoice? When you're facing difficulty in life or your job is on the line, when you have difficult relationship and when you're going through a tough time, how can you rejoice? He says, anticipate every new day as a wrapped gift from the hand of God and look forward to literally waking up and start unwrapping that wonderful gift from the hand of God. Start your day with gratitude for that gift. Start your day with great excitement and anticipation of unwrapping that gift to see what's inside it. And that is why this part of Solomon's message is directed to young people. So young people, listen. Moms and dads, you can teach that to your children. It's directed to young people because, you see, young people think that they are indestructible. They, they think they are invincible. They, they look and see and think their life is there, lays in front of them for miles and miles. And Solomon is saying, no, don't waste your youth. He's saying, don't gamble away your youth. Don't just sit there and let the years go by. Don't say, I've got plenty of time to do what I need to do. Don't say that I've got plenty of time to serve God. I've got plenty of time to glorify God. I've got plenty of time to live a godly and holy life for God. But rather, he says, revel in every moment of your life. Why? Because you will blink. And you look back and you say, what happened to these years? <laughs> What happened? Some of us are saying that right now. <laughs> Have you heard about the senility prayer? 
I know you heard the serenity prayer, but this is a senility prayer. It goes something like this. God grant me the senility to forget the people I'd never liked. And the good fortune to run into the ones that I do. And the eyesight to tell the difference. (laughs) He says, rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, he said, remove. Remove bitterness from your life while you're still young, because if you leave it there and you get older, it becomes like an oak tree. He's saying, remove false beliefs from your mind now while you're still young. Don't wait, because it will get worse and worse when you get older. He's saying, remove bad habits out of your life now while you're still young because later on they become concrete. Remove unwholesome relationships now from your life before they endanger your future. Rejoice. Remove and remember. Remember the constant presence of God. Wherever you go, He's with you, and He's watching over you. Remember to obey His Word. Remember to seek His righteousness and His kingdom first, for that is the secret for your success. Remember to place Him first in every decision you make. Why? Because if you don't do that while you're still young, soon your arms will get weak. Look at those verses in the beginning of chapter 12. Your knees will buckle. Your teeth will fall off. Your hearing will fail. Your voice will quiver. Your hair will get gray if you got any left. You will lose your appetites. Life is a stewardship invested wisely. Life is a celebration delight in it. Life is a school. Grow in it. Chapter 12, verses 9 to 12. Charles Spurgeon, one of my great heroes, said the following. He said, life is like a school, except that sometimes you don't know the lessons until you have failed the examination. (laughs) And I want to say amen belongs here. I've failed so many times. (laughs) I know all about that. (laughs) How does God teach us in His school of life? Primarily through His Word. And all sometimes... Those lessons, <laughs> they are so painful. They are so painful. Look at verse 11. There he talks about goads and nails. What's this all about? Most of you city slickers, we don't use goads. We don't even know what a goad is. It's not part of our vocabulary. It's not something that we use all the time. But let me give you an illustration. I was thinking about this, and I read about the latest scientific discovery of a cure for snoring. Now, you husbands and wives take notes. And if your spouse snores and turning your life into misery, I want you to listen. This is, this is a freebie. This is on the house, okay? Here's the latest scientific discovery. What you do, you bring a tennis ball, and you wrap it around the waist of the snorer. <laughs> Just wrap it around, but have, make sure that's in the lower back, okay? The idea, of course that while you're sleeping, every time you turn to sleep on your back, which causes you to snore, (laughs) that tennis ball is going to do its number on you. It's going to goad you. That's a goad. That's what a goad is. It's going to prod you, and you're going to turn around and sleep on your side. Okay, that's for free. You don't have to pay for that one. (laughs) Beloved, listen to me. 
You know and I know that often the Word of God does exactly that, and I thank God for it. Every time we are tempted to get away from the Lord, the Word of God gently and sometimes not so gently prods us to turn back to Him. That is exactly what a goat's supposed to do. That's exactly what the Word of God's supposed to do. Every time you're tempted to go it your way, to do it yourself, to do it your way, that Word of God, if you read it, that's why a lot of Christians don't read the Word of God. They have multiple translations in their homes, and yet they don't read it because the Word of God sometimes is a goad and is going to prod you to come back to God. What about these nails that he talks about here? Well, you see, back then they didn't have shelves. They didn't have—they just put a nail in the wall and hang things on them. That's what the nails were for. You hang things on them. So what do you hang on these nails? You hang the promises of the Word of God. You hang the promise of encouragement, the promise of rebuke, the promise for joy and fulfillment in life. Life is a school— Oh, but our textbook is the Bible, and our teacher is the Holy Spirit. And listen to me. (laughs) There are always new lessons in that school. (laughs) Always new lessons in God's school. Let me tell you, every time I think I've learned one, I've got a new one. (laughs) There are always new examinations coming up. And every time you think you passed one exam, you've got another one just coming after it. Always opportunities for growing. Always opportunities for progressing. Always opportunities for advancing. Listen to me. The old timer said, God is not going to take people who are spiritually lazy and undisciplined and get them to rule and reign the universe with Him. No. That is why He trained us. That is why He take us through His school. That is why every day is a day towards sanctification and growing more and more in Christ-likeness. Because by the time we go to see Him face to face, we are prepared to reign and rule with Him. Life is a stewardship. Invest it wisely. Life is a celebration. Delight in it. Life is a school. Grow in it. Finally, life is a responsibility. Succeed in it. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12 of the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, the book of Acts chapter 17 tells us that we don't own our life. If you belong to Christ, you don't own your life. I don't own my life. Our life is a gift from the hand of God. He owns it. You don't. I don't. And like any gift, listen to me very carefully, please. Like any gift, when you are given a gift, there is an obligation associated with that gift. You say, well, how come? If it's a gift. Ah, obligation to value it, obligation to cherish it, obligation to gratefully use it. Every gift places us under obligation. But how do you do that? Well, look at verse 13. I'm not making the stuff up. It's in the Word. (laughs) By fearing the giver of the gift. Fear God, he said. How do you do that? Listen carefully. What is this fear all about? We have a lot of fear in our culture, in our society. We have a lot of fear. I hope to God that you will understand what I'm going to tell you about fear because it will bless you. Fear, according to the Bible, the godly fear, I'm going to explain the difference in a minute, 
is that attitude of gratitude for the gift. It is that attitude of reverence and awe for the gift. It is the attitude of love and respect for the power and the greatness of the giver of gift. Did you know that there are two types of fear? They really are. There are two kinds of fear. And you know what? I've seen both of them in different people, and sometimes in one person at different times. The Bible talks about unholy fear. There's an unholy fear, and there is a holy fear. Unholy fear makes people want to run away from God. Unholy fear wants people to run away in terror from God. They're terrified of God. They want to run away in resentment of God. They want to run away from God in anger with God. And I've seen it. Ah, but there is a holy fear of which the Bible talks about for the believers. There is a holy fear. And that holy fear brings you closer to Him wants to draw you near to Him. That holy fear causes you to lovingly and respectfully draw near to Him in deep appreciation and gratitude. Hear me right on this one. I have seen it with my own eyes, and you have too. When you have holy fear, you fear nothing else but God. But when you are in an unholy fear, you will fear everything else except God. The holy fear fills us with a sense of responsibility, and that sense of responsibility propels us to succeed in the school of life. Even when we occasionally fail, and we all do, that sense of responsibility is going to propel us to ultimately succeed in the school of life as we walk with God. Let me conclude by telling you this story. Hopefully, it will illustrate what I'm trying to say. Back in 1929, Georgia Tech was playing the University of California, Berkeley, at the Rose Bowl. Where Georgia Tech fullback Jack Thompson makes a grave offensive play and causes a fumble. The football hits the turf, literally hits the turf, and then bounces right back into the hands of California Roy Regals. With the crowd going nuts, as you can only imagine, even back then, Roy took off to the goal line carrying the ball, and the other players in hot pursuit. His teammate, Benny Loam, chased Regal almost half the length of the football field, crying out and shouting, Stop! 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 And just a few yards from scoring a touchdown, Regals was tackled from behind by his own teammate. Only then did Regals realize his mistake. He had gotten turned around, and if his own teammate had not tackled him, had not chased him down, he would have scored a rose ball touchdown. I mean, that of all places, for the other team. <laughs> that, of course, happened during the first half of the game. 
As all Georgia Tech fans would like to remind you, they won that game. (laughs) But at halftime, California coach Nibs Price, who went in and gave one of his probably great speeches for a halftime speech, and was never condemning, never, here's why you, why did you do this? He's, you foolish guy. No, no. Here's what he said. Let me read it to you. He said, this game is only half over. Now get back out there and play football. <laughs> now, beloved friends, listen to me very carefully. There may be somebody here today who is in the halftime of the game of life. You may feel that you've been turned around in the game of life. Uh, You may feel that you have been heading in the wrong direction, and all of a sudden you realize what you're doing. You may be seeing all of life under the sun, and therefore you are discouraged on the one hand or careless on the other. This is the time. This is the moment for you to get back into the game of life because there is another half yet to be played. Begin to see life as of today as a stewardship to be invested wisely. Begin to see it as a celebration to be delighted in. Begin to see it as a school in which you grow in. Begin to see it as a responsibility to succeed in. Life is worth the living just because he lives. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.